am Dr. Julia Lashar McGee, and um, I actually work at the All of the UCLA Psychiatric Emergency Room, and also with the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership to bring you this talk about strategies for assessment and engagement in homeless individuals with psychosis. Um, I am going to be asking for your participation today, so fingers crossed, please. Um, when I ask you guys questions, uh, you can sort of raise your hand in the chat box and Jean will unmute you and then you can ask your question. If for some reason you're feeling super shy and you don't want to share your voice, you could always just type your question into the chat box and then Jean can uh, translate that for you. All right, so let's get started. Okay, so I just want to say thank you to Dr. Bromley and Jean Lundquist for helping me with this lecture today. Okay, so briefly, just what is psychosis? Just a reminder, psychosis is a brain illness that makes it difficult for a person to tell the difference between what's real and what's not real. And we're gonna go through a lot of examples, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disorganized thinking, paranoia, delusions. Um, okay, so when you're out in the field, so uh, this whole, the whole point of this uh, talk is for you to be able to be out in the field dealing with a homeless population and helping you to understand how to evaluate out there um, on the streets. So just a, a few sort of basic things. I know they sound like super easy, but it actually can take a lot of work sometimes to just observe and listen, be curious. You wanna pay attention to big changes and you also wanna pay attention to no change at all. So when you're observing, um, you wanna take notes on the details of what you're, you're of what your client's appearance, behavior, and environment is, because all these details come together to tell a story about what's going on with your client and helps the doctors figure out the best, best pathway to treatment. Um, so when you're thinking about big changes, um, some things that might be a sign that a crisis is going on for your client, if they're losing a lot of weight in a short period of time, if maybe perhaps you've known them to sort of roam all of Los Angeles, and then you've noticed that in the past few weeks or months, they've just been sitting in the same place. Um, also, uh, if they are alternating between um, sounding uh, really clear and looking well, and then other times when they're just a mess and they're not making sense and they're really psychotic, that might be a sign that there's substance abuse going on. Um, and I've been, I was asked to sort of go into a little bit of detail about this. And, you know, it's actually quite complicated if you're trying to sort of tease apart whether somebody has just substance abuse or substance abuse plus mental illness or a combination of both, which of course happens a lot um, in this population. Um, the thing I would say is uh, most, um, most people who have a combination of both, it's really going to be difficult to tell. And to be honest, when somebody is at the peak of their high and super psychotic, 
And when maybe someone has no substance in their system, no drugs in their system, and they're just really psychotic from their mental illness, you cannot tell the difference. I mean, sometimes there will be clues like, you know, if they, if you think that they're using meth and they might be particularly sweaty and you'll notice the change in their pupils. Um, but, you know, somebody who gets worked up um, because of maybe they're hearing voices that are making them particularly angry and they might, you know, storm up and down the block, they could also get sweaty. So that's not always a good, you know, sort of way to distinguish between the two. And really the only time you can do that is if they're in jail or the hospital where they have a prolonged period of sobriety that you can really tell what's going on um, once the drugs begin to leave their system. Um, but some of those changes that they get from substance abuse can last for a long time. Um, we know that um, there's a possibility that methamphetamine or um, a really strong dose of marijuana can can possibly change someone's brain forever and leave, leave them psychotic symptoms that linger for a long time. But it's really hard to know. I mean, was that person going to be psychotic anyways? Was that the development of a mental illness? It's all really hard to say. So uh, I, I hope that's not too confusing, but I just wanna let you know that that um, substance abuse can really complicate the picture. And, and if somebody is telling you, oh yeah, I know for a fact they don't have mental illness. Um, it's only substance abuse. Um, take that with a grain of salt because it's really hard to know with this population. Uh, also, you wanna pay attention to if, if your client is, is exhibiting no changes at all. Uh, that's really a sign of actual, actually severe illness. So if they're staying in the same place for a really long time or holding their body in the same position for a really long time, that's always a sign that um, the psychosis is probably pretty bad. Uh, wearing the same clothes despite extreme weather changes. So if they're wearing a winter jacket and it's 105 degrees outside, um, that should be concerning you as well, that they're not really able to pay attention to what's going on and regulate their, their temperature and their body changes as the weather changes. So when you wanna think about psychosis, you actually wanna think about what does psychosis look like and what does it sound like? So when we get into the details, you wanna look at their body, their clothing, their behaviors, their thoughts, their speech, and their environment or their neighborhood. Because when you pay attention and you can sort of break it down, you can see that actually all of these little details will give you the signs of what's going on, even if they say nothing. Because um, you are gonna get some people, I'm sure you've encountered them that are not willing to talk to you or can't talk to you. So um, what does psychosis look like when you're paying attention to the body? You might notice sores or rashes or wounds. You, you might have wounds that have discharge or pus. You might see swelling like this, this um, person's leg. I think you'll notice the left is a lot bigger than the right. They might be badly sunburned, covered in feces, caked on dirt, extremely thin, 
all of these things that I've listed here can be a sign of psychosis. So I'm wondering if somebody from the audience might like to point to one of these um, body changes and explain to me why it might be a symptom of psychosis. I could give you an example if you'd like. <laughs> um, so uh, wounds, uh, when, when people have sort of these gaping wounds and they look horrible, they might be weeping with discharge or they might have pus and they're just ignoring um, the wounds. That's often a sign of psychosis because people with um, severe uh, negative symptoms of psychosis often neglect their bodies. And that's one way in which you can tell sort of obviously there's this huge wound on their body that they're ignoring and not taking care of. Um, anybody wanna <laughs> chime in? <laughs> Why might you see someone um, with feces on them? Neglecting hygiene. Yes, exactly. Neglecting hygiene. Thank you. Um, burned fingertips. Does anybody know what that's referring to? Wearing no shoes, walking barefoot. Yeah, exactly. Barefoot. That's an excellent one. So when I often times now, of course, Meth is, is more the uh, drug du jour <laughs> than, than crack and cocaine uh, used to be bigger. But um, a lot of times you'll see people's, the tips of their fingers, fingers will be black and burned and that's from uh, the crack. So um, obviously somebody who's using cocaine, methamphetamine or PCP, those are the sort of top three ones that can make people really psychotic whether or not they have an underlying mental illness. Um, the next example is somebody brought up barefoot. So pay attention to their clothing. Are they naked or part of their, uh, the way their clothing is sort of revealing their genitals or their bare breasts? Um, are they wearing odd items? Do, are their clothes um, urine soaked or covered in feces? Um, Sometimes you like you see this gentleman here, they're just wearing something that might go on another body part that's maybe in an unusual place, like a sock on their ear, but it's not cold. So it's not necessarily that they're keeping their socks on their ears for warmth. Um, does anybody have any idea of what symptom might cause somebody to wear a sock that normally goes on their foot on their ear? What, what, what psychotic symptom might we call that? Uh, Patricia put in the chat auditory hallucinations. Okay, uh, so maybe the voice is telling them to put the sock on their ear. Yes. Another person said a paranoia. Okay, like maybe they wanna cover their ear because they're afraid of what might happen to it or, or maybe they're trying to block out sound. And then Violetta said disorganized behavior. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. But they're all they're all possible um, possible symptoms. So yeah, disorganized behavior. So disorganization just means that their thoughts get jumbled up in their head, and as a result, the things that they do often don't make sense. Um, 
and and really it can run the gamut, but but sort of an obvious one is you might hand them something that normally um, if your brain is working well, you would know that the sock goes on your foot. But if you're disorganized, you might end up putting that sock on a different body part because um, the normal uh, way that they process information uh, has, has gone awry. And so they might do things differently. Also, you want to pay attention to their environment. Are there feces or urine close, close by to where they are? Um, you want to pay attention to drug paraphernalia and needles around them, um, which of course might indicate drug use, although it could be from other people, of course, too. Um, is there garbage in their personal space? Normally people will tend to push that away a bit to where, from where they're sitting. Um, but someone with psychosis might not do that. Are they close to other homeless people or have they isolated themselves? Instead of being at, in busy streets or in front of businesses, are they maybe hidden away from other people? What, what kinds of psychotic symptoms might you see resulting in some of these environment, environmental changes? Why might somebody be away and hidden away from other people? Maybe their, maybe their encampment is gonna be hidden and not and far away from people. Is it paranoid? Yeah, sure, paranoid, exactly. Um, also um, feces and urine close by, that's sort of another sign of self-neglect. It's something that um, most human beings will sort of separate themselves from feces and urine. And that's just a sign that something's not working right in their brain when they, they might be very close to, you know, lying right next to feces or urine. That's a pretty big sign that, that something has gone wrong. Any questions about what we just covered? Can I ask a question that might not be exactly about what we just covered, but maybe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> do, do people who um, have psychotic symptoms seek to use uh, substances that happen to cause more psychotic symptoms? Is that some form of, of self-treatment? Yeah, you know, I think there's a there's a lot of talk about whether drugs are are self medicating. Certainly, they are for some people. But the funny thing is, is when you'll ask a lot of uh, your clients, oh, you know, what happens when you use cocaine? That make the voices louder or quieter? Does it make them more of them or less of them? And they'll often recognize it makes the voices worse pretty much with the vast majority of voices, they tend to be really disturbing to people. Um, so it, in some ways it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like the opposite of something you'd wanna do um, to, make, to make the voices even louder and meaner and sort of ever present. Uh, but we know that, that those two things go hand in hand. Uh, certainly, uh, especially with bipolar disorder, we know it's in the 80% range 
that people use other substances, although it could be all kinds of substances. Um, certainly a lot of people will say that cannabis relaxes them and um, heroin uh, and various kinds of opiates certainly are more relaxing, whereas methamphetamine, cocaine, PCP, very activating and tend to worsen um, the positive symptoms like paranoia, delusions, hallucinations. Um, I think, you know, when you, when you talk to different people, you're going to get different answers, but that's the theory behind why uh, substance abuse is so common in people with psychosis. Any other questions? Um, I had a question about like the feces and urine. Yeah. Um, is that, I know you said it's because like they're just organized. Is it because like they don't have a concept for like keeping track of time and like, you know, doing the basic ADLs and um, hygiene. Mm -hmm. So it it can be this. It's sort of a combination of disorganization, but it's probably more like the symptom of neglect, of self-neglect that comes with psychosis. It's one of the negative symptoms of psychosis. Um, we, call, we call them negative symptoms. So there's positive symptoms, which are hallucinations and delusions, delusions and paranoia. And then there's the box of negative symptoms, which one of those can be neglect, um, self-neglect, uh, neglecting their, their hygiene, having poor hygiene. So it's sort of actually like a disconnect. It's kind of like they disconnect from all of the things that, that a lot of human beings might sort of see as a necessary function of life that you're going to separate yourself from urine and feces and that that um, ability to sort of see that urine and feces are sort of like a danger a something something that you wouldn't want to be near all of those all of those warnings that exist have been turned off uh, and they just sort of disconnect from their environment, from their physical environment, from their physical bodies. And I mean, disconnect um, like uh, cognitively and emotionally. They're, they're not connected on that same level. And so that's why you're seeing the neglect and the poor hygiene. Um, and so if you were to take that person and help treat their negative symptoms with medication, and then you, let's say, you know, have them back in an environment where they have to use the bathroom. It's very unlikely that they're going to be in the same position of, of being near feces or putting it on them um, or not wiping it off because um, that's the difference uh, between someone who's medicated and not medicated when you're treating some of the symptoms of psychosis, you'll see that go away. Any other questions? We're a little over five minutes, okay. but Ingrid followed up yeah. about how does this disconnect play out, which is a, a big question. It's a great question. We're actually going to get into it more. So if you can hang on just a minute, we're going to go to that. Um, okay, so what does psychosis look like when you're talking about behavior? You wanna pay attention to eye contact. Are they not making any eye contact or very little eye contact? 
Are they maybe looking at invisible others? Are they isolating themselves from other people or interacting with other people? Do you notice that maybe they're indifferent, meaning they're, they don't care whether anybody's standing there or not standing there. They're sort of not paying attention to people around them. Are they hostile or aggressive? Uh, are they inappropriately close or maybe inappropriately sexual? Uh, and then you wanna pay attention to if they're wandering around the city or if they're sitting in one place or lying in one place all the time. Again, a very um, concerning symptom of psychosis. So, so of these, what, what do these tell you? What kind of psychotic symptoms might point to some of these things? Why might somebody be aggressive? Violetta says auditory hallucinations. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so we have an example. Um, and let me just say, I understand that's been a bit of a concern. Um, when, when showing video clips, I spent an enormous amount of time, hours, searching the web for video clips to, to kind of have an idea of what we're talking about. I think it's really important when we're talking about psychosis that you be able to see it, that we're all sort of seeing and talking about the same things. Um, psychosis can be subtle in a lot of ways. I mean, it can be sort of the obvious, you know, person talking to themselves and ranting and raving. Um, I mean, that's the one I think that's quite easy uh, for people to see and understand, but there are a lot of other symptoms that are quite subtle and they're hard to pick up on. So I think it's really important that we do have a few video clips that we can see what it is that this looks like. Um, and so unfortunately there are some um, websites where they have filmed people who are psychotic on the streets, which is really, you know, what I want you to have a flavor of because that's what we're talking about is people on the streets. Uh, but it's extremely difficult and, and really sort of impossible to get consent from someone who is that sick. Um, essentially someone who is, is as psychotic as the, from the clips we're showing now, um, is they do not have the capacity, that's a word that we use in medicine to sort of, um, explain somebody's ability to understand the risks and benefits of being filmed, of being shown, you know, on YouTube or on the internet. Um, so, you know, even if you were to ask someone in that moment and they say, yes, you can film me, you're actually not really getting a good, a, a true um, consent from someone because they're in the midst of being ill and they can't make those clear decisions until actually they would be medicated and then, or sober, depending on which, or both, um, in order to really get a true sense of whether they can consent or not. Um, I tried to get as few examples as possible from the websites where it's not clear whether they were consented, but I just wanna say that at the outset. Uh, so we're going to look at this one. So um, in that example, what kind of psychosis were you were you seeing? What kind of symptoms of psychosis could you see with that young lady? Caesar says disorganization and probably some auditory or visual hallucinations. Certainly. So she's she's pointing and talking to 
So she's responding to internal stimuli. Clearly she's hearing something that we can't hear and responding to that. Anything else? What, what is it about um, psychosis that might have somebody stay in the same space for so long? I'm sure you've seen people perhaps on the streets who've been lying sort of in a blanket or something and they just have not moved from that spot for months maybe even years. Because of schizophrenia, maybe? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so- client who stays at the same spot for three years already now, and she thinks she's working on a project and she doesn't have to move. Exactly, okay. So sometimes it might be a delusion that's driving them to stay in that same spot. So her project is keeping her there. Any other, anybody else might have an idea as to why psychosis might keep somebody in the same spot for years or um, months? Violetta and Mimi both said catatonia. Exactly, yes, exactly. Um, so just the, the catatonia would be sort of the most severe symptom of schizophrenia or the most severe form of schizophrenia. Um, which would include a lot of negative symptoms, like I've mentioned before. We're, we're going to talk about that again and get into the details. But um, there's something called a motivation, which means that people just don't have the motivation or desire to really do much of anything. So they can actually sit and be in the same space or lie in the same space for years at a time. Um, really it's a really profound sign of illness and the only way to treat catatonia is with medication unfortunately let's go on real quickly to um super agitated ones but they also might be the opposite they might be unusually slow never moving they might have odd movements or keep their body in an odd position for long periods of time so we're going to take one more look at what that might look like. What kind of psychotic symptoms are you seeing there? Christian says disorganized speech. Yeah. Ina says uh, auditory or visual hallucinations. Uh, and then P uh, says responding to internal stimuli. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about when he's sort of doing those unusual movements with his, with his body. Any thought as to what that would be? What symptom of psychosis that would be? The name? Someone mentioned it before with another one, but. So that's an example of disorganized behavior. Uh, can be sort of things that, that don't seem to fit. Um, it, it is quite possible that he is responding to something that he's hearing or thinking, um, but but that's a that's a very common one that you'll see um, with people who are quite ill are just random movements that don't have any meaning or context in in the current place where they are. Alrighty, let's just move on to, okay, psychosis. What does psychosis sound like? Um, all kinds of things you're gonna hear. Um, you could hear actually with that gentleman, the different sort of vocalizations 
that were sort of random, bizarre, weren't really words per se. So you might see disorganized speech, you might see word salad, which means there's a whole bunch of words coming out of their mouth, but they're not at all connected. They're not forming sentences. You may, might be tangential, which means you might start off in something that's clear and makes sense, and then you might go off on a tangent that's going to go off into topics that have nothing to do with what, what you were just talking about. Or circumstantial, where they take a long way around and they're talking about everything else until they get to the point of what you guys were talking about or asking about. They might be selectively mute or they might be completely mute. They might not be able to speak at all. They might be yelling or whispering, mumbling, monotone is another one pressured, rapid, slow, or the one that's really painful is when they have long pauses between their words or their sentences. Any thoughts about what those kinds of different speech might come from? What kind of psychosis will you see that might create somebody who is, um, let's say pressured, where, where are you gonna see pressured speech from? Everybody should know this one. Bipolar? Bipolar, yes, exactly. Okay. How about monotone? What do we call it when somebody's speaking monotone? We have a word for that. Flat yeah. apple? Yes, exactly. Two people. Flat. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> um, when, when might you see, why might somebody be selectively mute? Why are they gonna maybe sometimes answer your questions and other times say nothing? Thought blocking, Thought. say two people in the chat. Yes, excellent. Thought blocking. Is it and any possible other... they're uncomfortable with the line of questioning? Could be, could be, yeah. Did, did somebody wanna explain th th the thought blocking? Yes, paranoid, exactly. So, so when somebody's thought blocking, um, they, they actually sort of, you, you'll see it's, it's, almost, it's almost like mechanical, like suddenly something happens and you jump the track and suddenly they're not speaking anymore. And it's actually, um, sometimes it's auditory hallucinations that are telling them not to answer that question or speak. And sometimes it is just uh, like they are literally jumping the tracks and derailing and suddenly they stop mid-sentence. And we don't know why that's happening, but that's actually a sign of psychosis. That's a symptom of psychosis. Okay. Um, one way that can be really helpful for assessing disorganization. Um, so disorganization means their ideas and their words or even their sentences are jumbled up and they don't make sense or they might actually repeat the same words, the same sentences or the same ideas over and over again. But sometimes disorganization can be really subtle. And, and the thing that's really important to remember is that you might be sitting there having a conversation, they are answering your questions, but at the end of the conversation, you just feel confused. And I would just ask you in that moment, if you're feeling confused, often 
you know, the impulse is to sort of second guess yourself, wait, I, you know, maybe I wasn't paying attention, maybe I didn't drink enough coffee today. But usually what that means is actually the client is disorganized. Um, and there's some way that they're subtly communicating that isn't quite making sense and they're not able to put all the pieces together to be clear and that is why you are confused. Um, thinking about what kind of psychotic thoughts people might have. They might have paranoia, delusions. They might be really hyper-religious or hypersexual. They might just have the same topic that they go back to over and over. They're gonna perseverate on that topic. Or maybe they're gonna have a poverty of thought and, and they're gonna actually say very little or they're just not gonna make sense and it's hard to pinpoint what's going on. Um, so we're going to take a look at this video. I want you to pay attention to his speech and his thoughts and see if you can figure out what might be going on. Okay, so in that example, what kind of symptoms of psychosis were you seeing with that gentleman? That, by the way, is a wonderful documentary called Broken Lives Illustrated. Um, he draws the people that he talks to on the streets as well, which is what you were seeing there. So, so what symptoms were you seeing in that gentleman? So Ina says catatonia. Sure, catatonia. Um, what, what, what specifically, what symptom of catatonia were, were you thinking of? So if you notice he, he had, oh, are you somebody ready to talk? No, no, I was just going to say that Ingrid said grandiose delusions. <laughs> yes, he's he certainly, so he's, he's a grandmaster mason, so goodness even knows what that means exactly, uh, and he clearly feels that he needs to be right there um, in front of that tree, or maybe it looked like a yucca that he needs to sit in front of um, and, and provide a public service. Um, so yes, definitely some grandiosity. Did you notice the way that he was speaking was sort of uh, vague and maybe concrete? Maybe like he's answering, but overall it's unresponsive. Okay, right. So, so that's sort of an example of poverty of thought. Like he's answering the question, but it's sort of vague and doesn't quite get you anywhere. Um, not really giving you any information about his situation and what's going on. Um, and, it, and, and it's important to understand that it's, it's not like he's being pur purposefully evading the question. That's actually part of the brain illness. That's part of the, the process that eats away at someone's ability to communicate clearly. Um, did you notice how he sort of randomly said, you know, he's in the war room and had something to do with criminal justice. So he's pretty disorganized because uh, that had pretty much nothing to do with the, the previous thing he was talking about, about sort of being friends with the whole world and doing a public service. So he's definitely disorganized. Uh, they, I, I, I'm sorry about the, the sound. I, I hope you guys were able to hear that well enough. Um, let's just go on real quick. Um, 
and thing that's important. And actually, this interviewer that that talks to the this gentleman on the uh, on the documentary did a really beautiful job of talking to him because the thing that you want to pay attention to is when a client says something that doesn't make sense. You want to be curious and ask more so you can get an idea of what's going on and what is your client thinking. It's okay to say, you know, I don't really understand that. When he said, you know, I'm in the war room, uh, the interviewer said, what does that mean? So don't be, don't be afraid to sort of say, I don't understand what you're talking. Tell me more about that. That's the best way to sort of get at delusions is, is sort of, as you're having a conversation, it might be going along and, and everything you're understanding. And then there's one thing that's just sort of a little bit off. That's where you want to dig and you want to sort of, you know, gently stop the conversation and say, huh, tell me more about that. I, I'm not sure I, I follow. Um, that's where sort of the gold is in terms of uh, being able to access their, their, their delusions and their sort of unusual thought patterns. Um, so pay attention to that because when you understand the way that your client is thinking, it can help you uh, understand the, the reasons they're making the decisions they make and the reasons they're living the life they're living. Uh, all right. Any questions about any of that that we just talked about? We had a question from a while ago. Sure. Go ahead. Um, just going to scroll up to find it really quick from Sarah um, about no mention of LSD causing psychosis, mm -hmm. but it must as a hallucinogen, right? I have a client experiencing chronic slash persistent auditory and visual hallucinations who alternates between using LSD, meth, and alcohol several times a week. Okay. Um, you know, hard to say, you know, the, the thing, yes, so LSD can cause uh, hallucinations. I'm sorry, I didn't include that one because it's not super common <laughs> that you're going to see that. Um, and I suspect that what's really driving any of his hallucinations is the meth. The important thing to know about meth is while somebody can definitely be high in the moment hearing voices from meth, uh, those psychotic symptoms can last long after um, they've, they've used it. So, so you will see some people where they say, you know, oh, I only use meth on Saturdays. It's like they're let their hair down, get a drink, except they use meth. Um, it's not uncommon for those people to experience symptoms all the way in between one Saturday to the next Saturday. Um, oftentimes people who have used methamphetamine chronically will continue to have symptoms that linger long past the time that they've been sober, um, sometimes years uh, after they, they've been sober and stopped using meth, they can still have psychotic symptoms. So that stuff really lingers. And again, as I mentioned, it's hard to know, was this person you know, on their way to developing a mental illness. And that just sort of, you know, it made it happen sooner and uncovered the psychosis that was already bubbling. Or was this truly from the methamphetamine? Hard to know. Um, but either way, the symptoms of psychosis can linger long past. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to talk about engagement. Okay. So let's talk about the best ways to communicate with people who are experiencing psychosis. Um, I just want to say at the outset, I know that this is going to be supremely disappointing and unsatisfying for a lot of people. Um, I know that a lot of people who go into the helping professions, you know, you want to be able to do more and, and sort of have tools in your toolkit that can help somebody. And what I'm sort of actually going to ask you to do is actually do less when you're dealing with people who are experiencing psychosis. Less is more when you're, when you're um, dealing with somebody who is really in the throes of hallucinations, delusions. Um, you want, especially for people who are disorganized, which means they are having trouble not only communicating their thoughts clearly, but they're having trouble receiving the information clearly. Uh, you wanna use very simple language and use as few words as possible. Um, if you, for instance, encounter somebody on the streets and you want to perhaps offer them to start medication with a street psychiatrist and you would like to find them some kind of temporary housing and perhaps you want to deal with the gaping wound that is on their arm, um, the best thing to do is actually sort of prioritize. You can't possibly communicate all those three ideas at once with somebody who's disorganized. It's gonna be very difficult for them to follow what you're saying and probably difficult for them, for you to know if they're following or understanding anything of what you're talking about. So you really want to decide on the, the major point and just choose one thing that you're gonna do for each visit, one sort of discussion point that you're gonna hammer home or try to hammer home. Um, oftentimes when I get people in the emergency room who are super sick and they're responding to internal stimuli and they're, you know, they're having a whole conversation with this invisible other, it's really hard for me to even get their attention let alone get them to sort of understand what I'm saying. So I usually just choose one thing that I want to get from them. And usually that thing I choose is like, what is my most important priority? Usually for me, I really wanna know if they have a medical problem. And that is the only thing I'm gonna ask them for the next five or 10 minutes, hopefully five. Um, so often I'm, oftentimes I'm just a broken record. I'm repeating intermittently, hey, uh, Joe, can you tell me what medical problems you have? And I probably have to, you know, say it again and again, but that is the only thing I'm going to ask them because I'll be lucky if I can get any kind of clear communication and clear answer from them. You also want to keep the communication short. Um, people who are experiencing psychosis can get overwhelmed and overstimulated pretty easily because a lot of times they've already got something going on inside. Um, usually they're hearing 
one or multiple voices that are quite loud and persistent and often saying really terrible things to them. And it's really hard to focus on anything else outside of the environment. So you wanna keep that visit short. You also don't wanna to get too close. Um, the, it's, it's hard to know, you know what someone's personal space is, but you wanna sort of keep your distance so that they are not feeling threatened in any way. because. Um, oftentimes it's quite easy when you're paranoid to feel threatened. So all of these things are to say, um, simplicity is the key, less is more. You, want, you really wanna give them um, as little sort of overwhelming interaction as possible. So um, we mentioned this before, but I just wanna review for you when we talk about Paranoia, delusions, hallucinations, we call those the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, those are the ones that are usually really easy to pinpoint. The ones that are harder to pay attention to are the negative symptoms. Um, so we are going to take a look at this person. Uh, can anybody <laughs> identify some negative symptoms that you saw with that gentleman? What stood out to you? There's a lot. So Ina says inexpressive face, monotone speech, yeah. lack of movement, quote unquote, yeah. like a robot. Yeah. Okay. So definitely we, we call it uh, when people are flat, it's not just the face, it's the monotone. He's moving very little. Exactly. Did somebody notice anything else? Yvette said mechanical movements and uh -huh. Sarah said long pauses. Yeah, really long pauses. I was waiting for somebody to say that. Okay. Um, so all of those that you're seeing, um, I, I don't know if you noticed. So that was about two and a half minutes that it took for him to maybe answer his understanding of why he's in the hospital is because he doesn't play the piano like other people play the piano. Uh, that, so that's his understanding of why he's in the hospital, but it took us that long to get to his answer. Um, so let's, yeah, uh, sorry. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, um, no, please go ahead. I think it's, it, it looked like you can see him thinking. Mm -hmm. I don't find it is very much like that. You can see the wheels turning. Mm -hmm. How do you describe that? Um, so perfect segue. So let's talk about this. So that example would be poverty of thought. So he's really slow to respond. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but we often call that concrete. So um when he initially said, it's like a very black and white way of thinking, why are you here? Because my psychiatrist put me here as opposed to because, I don't know, I have no idea by the way what he did uh, to get hospitalized. Uh, probably what you were seeing there, the, the symptoms of catatonia. Um, there's flat affect, which is a limited emotional range, monotone. There's a motivation, which is um, that we talked about before, uh, reduced motivation to do anything, to move, to speak, um, 
to clean yourself. So there's a lot of self-neglect, poor hygiene. Social withdrawal is another negative symptom. So they tend to avoid people. They have very few social interactions. Um, we sometimes people call it autism because they just do not, they don't have that ability to connect. They don't make eye contact. Uh, anhedonia, they have few or no interests at all and they have an inability to experience pleasure. So all of these things you're seeing um, in this gentleman and in uh, a couple of other patients that we saw back and also um, the, the person who was, was sharing their story of the woman who's been on in the same place for three years, uh, those are all symptoms, negative symptoms of psychosis, the amotivation. Uh, so his, his um, this particular gentleman's very long um, lapses in speech, uh, his, his sort of inability to, where you see the wheels turning very slowly, hard for him to get the words out. Some people who can go on from that and not get treated, they can actually lose the ability to speak at all. Um, I've seen that uh, with one gentleman who was in the hospital for a really long time. You could actually slowly see his ability to speak completely leave. Um, luckily, of course, we, we were able to start medications and get him back. Um, all of these symptoms can be treated by medication, but frankly, we know that um, our current antipsychotics do not do a great job of addressing a lot of these symptoms. Um, so it's very dependent on the person and their particular response to medication. Um, but these are some of the symptoms that often linger and you'll hear family members say, you know, oh, my son is so lazy. Often what they're describing and what they're seeing are the negative symptoms. It's, it's not as though the person has decided, you know, he doesn't want to move and he doesn't want to smile uh, and he doesn't want to interact with people. These are all, again, processes of the disease of schizophrenia and psychosis that slowly sort of um, gums up the machinery and, and the way that they process information uh, just is, is, um, is, is a sign of disease that they cannot communicate in the way that they might otherwise uh, with medication or if they didn't have that disease. Okay, so what do you do when you get someone who's lying there who doesn't respond to you at all or responds to you very little, has that minimal response uh, with the poverty of, of thought that we saw with that guy, um, that guy in, the, in the hospital in that interview? So the important thing to know is that is a severe form of psychosis that only improves with medication. Uh, it does not, unfortunately, respond to trust building and social connection. And I know 
um, you know, that that's, that's something that we really rely on with, with our clients is our ability to sort of break through and connect with somebody. But by virtue of the illness, the negative symptoms sort of block, block your ability to use the normal tools that you might to bond with someone and get through. So the important thing to remember is that when you are consistently getting no response or minimal response, you need to think about treatment options that are available for people who can't accept that kind of help, which would be uh, a 5150 for grave disability. Um, the, the thing to remember is that uh, it's not something that um, time and social connection are going to improve. So whether you have known that client for a year or 10 years, that breakthrough that you're hoping for isn't going to happen. And it's not by virtue of your lack of trying or, or your some, it's not some comment on your ability to connect with people. This is, this is a symptom of the illness. And when you see these symptoms, you have to be able to recognize um, what's in front of you and, and understand that there's a limit to what you can do um, for them on the streets, unless they're they're willing to accept medication from the street psychiatrist. Okay, um, so just thinking about how do delusions impact somebody's decision making? Uh, another thing that I know is extremely frustrating <laughs> that a lot of people, you know, they want to keep working with somebody with delusions there. You think you're going to be able to sort of present a certain amount of facts and be able to talk them out of that. That is sort of the definition of a delusion is fixed. You cannot talk them out of this thought. Um, whether it's a healthcare professional, if it's their family, if it's their best friend, it's, it's, not, um, it's not based on a social connection. This is, this is an illness and you need to understand that there, there, are, there are limits to what you can do. Now, there's, there's some times where you can sort of perhaps use somebody's delusion to your advantage, uh, but you have to be really careful about that. I mean, I have in desperate times, you know, if somebody said, oh, you know, I, I've been poisoned and maybe what I'm really worried about is their liver and their kidneys and I've got to draw their blood. I might say, well, let's, let's draw your blood and figure out, you know, whether we see any poisons. And then I can say, I do not see any poisons. But that's, you know, that's like when you're really desperate and you, you have no choice. But I would be very careful about using that uh, because that can really backfire and ultimately make them sort of confirm their paranoia about you or about healthcare. Um, so you have to be really careful when you're trying to use their delusion to sort of get what you are hoping for to get, to get a better outcome for your client. Um, so the reason clients are often refusing to leave the streets is because they're living according to rules that you can't see or understand that are the, that's the delusion. And sometimes it might take you a while to get down to it and figure it out. Why has this lady, for instance, 
uh, been on the streets for three years, which I think you you found out was was related to her delusion that she had a project that she had to be there. Um, all right. So also thinking about how does paranoia impact a client's decision making? Uh, they probably are going to avoid places where there are people nearby. Oftentimes, the housing options that we have for people, especially you know in the like shelter or transitional living situation, boarding cares. These are residential settings where other people live, and a lot of times people are going to refuse to live in those places because they don't want to deal with other people. Um, Thinking about hallucinations and how do those impact uh, clients' decision-making. Um, oftentimes, clients will mistake the hallucinations for real voices of people around them. And what does that lead to? Unfortunately, a lot of arguments, a lot of fights, sometimes just mistrust of people in general or isolation. So oftentimes they're hearing voices that are saying these horrible things and they assume perhaps that that's you or perhaps somebody's standing next to you. Uh, you know, maybe it's you're a two person team um, or maybe you're just in a, in a setting where there are people walking by. They often are assuming that the people that are saying those things are the people that are walking by when in fact, we know that in fact, it's actually their brain that's making them hear those things. Um, so think about those, those situations when you're, when you're looking at people who are on the streets. So what happens when they respond with hostility or aggression? Um, and one thing that's really important that I cannot emphasize enough, you wanna listen to that part of yourself that's feeling unsafe when somebody is getting loud or angry or throwing things. Um, I, I think it's, it's not too uncommon that, that oftentimes you wanna sort of override that fear and see if you can somehow negotiate with this person or, or reason them or talk them down. Um, there are parts of our brain that are sort of the ancient caveman part of our brain um, that has existed for a long time that is there to warn us about danger and you really need to listen to that. So walk away try another day. If they're consistently aggressive, you want to think about calling the police for 5150. And that's not only to protect yourself, but protect all the, the public around this person who might um, unfortunately be an unwitting target of their violence. Um, people with aggressive psychosis are usually beyond reason. Uh, you're, you're, not going to be able to talk them out of the thoughts that they're having, the delusions they're having, whatever it is that they're hearing. Often they need medication to help calm them down and clear up their thinking. Um, all right, so how do your client's symptoms impact their decisions? Let's look at the anosognosia, which is like a long word, which basically means uh, this is when people cannot see that they're sick. So we're going to look at an example of this. Um, so people who, who have anosognosia are going to refuse help because they don't think they need help and they don't want help. 
So I know you've countered, encountered a lot of this uh, out there with your homeless clients. And it's really important to remember that this is actually a symptom of psychosis um, and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So when they say, I'm fine, you know, they might have you know, feces all over their body, all over their face, all over their clothes. And, or maybe they're really, really skinny um, and they just don't look well, but they're fine. They're always going to say, oh, I'm fine. I, I don't need anything. I don't need your help. Remembering this is anosognosia. So what do you do when you enc uh, encounter a client like this? Um, Unfortunately, there are no magic words I wish I could give you to help people recognize their illness. Pointing out the fact that they, you know, have a gaping wound that's, you know, seeping pus or they have poop on their face um, and maybe they've been out on this sidewalk for two years and not moved. Pointing out the facts of their situation are not going to change their mind. And this is another instance where trust and social connection doesn't impact that component of the illness. Uh, and that is why 5150 uh, exists for, for situations like this. It's a really um, challenging and difficult symptom to get over and and um, you're going to see a sort of disproportionate number of people that are living on the streets who have this symptom so it might look like everybody has this symptom but that's because the people who are on the streets if you haven't already noticed those are definitely the sickest people uh, that we have um, not only in LA but really in the country uh, they've been they've been living with psychosis for so long, and it's 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 sort of like uh, a real sign of of how um, terrible it is that they've they've gone without treatment and their symptoms have gotten that severe. So just thinking, remember, but thinking about disorganization, how does it impact the client's decision making? It means they can't think logically or clearly. They can't weigh the pros and cons of their actions and they have trouble making good decisions. So when you put all of these together, hallucinations, paranoia, delusions, disorganized thinking, and nosognosia, all of these come together to create psychosis which is by far the biggest obstacle to mental and physical wellness. And that's because the reality in your client's head is going to win every time. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's only so, so far that you'll get with um, a varying number of resources that you might offer, you know, pointing out, huh, you know, it's, I've noticed you've lost a lot of weight. It's really scaring me. Um, they're, they're not going to be um, sort of seeing the same thing that you see. Questions? Well, in the chat, we have a couple comments and also a question. I'll start mm -hmm. with the question. From Sarah, what if a client has been repeatedly 5150 but returns to the street each yeah. time back to the same situation? Yeah, if that's a real bummer. Um, so uh, uh, just a few things. First of all, um, 
important thing to know is that when people get on a hold and then they get discharged really quickly, it's important to remember that that is not necessarily at all a sign that they didn't need to be on a hold, that they didn't need to be in the hospital for a longer period of time, that they didn't need treatment for a longer period of time. That is basically a function of the really crappy system, uh, mental health system that we've inherited. And it's gotten so bad um, that I can tell you uh, without reservation, we discharge people every day who I know 10, 15 years ago, we would have kept for a really long time. We could have conserved them in the past and we just don't have those resources now. There's just not enough beds. Uh, so we have to make really lousy decisions and let people go when we shouldn't let them go. And that's on us. I mean, that's, that's certainly not um, a function of your choosing that you somehow chose the wrong person that they aren't really ill. Um, so I can say that, you know, there's, don't hesitate to do another 5150 if, you know, you notice that there's something that is going to um, really endanger them. If there's an infection that needs to be treated uh, or a wound, or they're losing a lot of weight, or you just, for whatever reason, you, you think that they're really dying on the streets, you, you gotta do what you've gotta do regardless of what's happened in the past. Uh, there is a new pilot program for outpatient conservatorship um, which you could contact uh, the public guardian's office and, and ask, and perhaps maybe they might consider your client for something like that, which means that you don't have to get them in the hospital and on a 5150 in order to start the process of getting, um, getting them a hearing and potentially consi considering them for conservatorship when you would therefore be able to get them in a treatment facility, whatever you feel it's necessary. Um, ultimately, of course, that can lead to 5150s in the future, but um, it just, it's, it's sort of a tool to, to uh, help keep them in the hospital for a longer period of time. Um, the other thing you might wanna try is the street psychiatrist. We do have a street psychiatrist with DMH that can go out to a patient, sorry, a client on the street and, and have a conversation with them, have a couple conversations with them, see if they're willing to try medication. We can offer not only oral medications, but we can offer um, injectable medications, which can work sometimes for people who you think maybe might not really be able to keep track of their meds and take a pill every day, which can be really hard, especially for somebody who's disorganized. Um, or you could take them to the urgent care if you think they might be willing to go to an urgent care with you to start on medications. That might be another thing you can try. I hope that's, I, I realize it's a very frustrating situation and, and I know there's not a whole lot of options, but those are some of them. And then Sarah has a follow-up to what you just said and mm -hmm. she asks, is that when a board in care is an appropriate consideration? Um, I'm not sure what the follow-up is. Okay, so um, like maybe, are you talking about conservatorship? I'm not sure. I, yeah, I think it's from, 
Um, you know, if they're 5150, but return to the street. Oh, right. Time. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, boarding care, boarding care is a little challenging. So you can certainly, there's a, I think, God, am I going to get this right? Is it ERS? There's so many acronyms now, it's hard to keep track, but there's a system that you guys have, I believe it's called ERS, to begin a process to help look for board and cares. Um, a board and care, generally speaking, it kind of depends on how sick the individual is that you're working with. If they're the sort of person that's, you know, say, with really prominent negative symptoms, somebody who's lying there on the streets for years or months, that's probably not gonna be somebody who could go directly to a board and care. At a board and care, you have to be able to do your ADLs, your activities of daily living. They have to be able to bathe themselves, uh, change their clothes, um, uh, feed themselves, um, use the bathroom themselves. Did I say that one already? I'm sorry if I repeated that. Uh, so there's sort of like a basic amount of functioning that you have to be able to do at a board and care. Um, so some people are gonna need a little um, sprucing up if they're gonna be able to go to a board and care. And it's everybody's different and it's hard to know. Um, some people just need a few days of medication to really, you know, bounce back and look significantly better. Other people may not respond to medications as well, and it might take a lot longer. So if you have somebody that is willing to try medication, uh, you probably want to go that route, even if it's just on the street. So you can get their thinking a little bit more clear, be sure that they are sort of doing things to care for themselves uh, before you can get them into a board and care. But sometimes, you know, if you're really desperate. Um, oh, also, let me say, remind you that there, if there's a substance abuse issue and you need to get them into a, like a residential rehab maybe before you go down the board and care route. Um, people in, in, the, in the rehab residential area will not take somebody who's super psychotic. So if they're like talking to themselves a lot, um, responding to internal stimuli, uh, aggressive yelling, even if they're not aggressive, maybe they, their bark is worse than their bite. Um, they, they have a pretty low threshold um, for psychosis. They, they, don't, um, they don't have a very high tolerance for that. So you, you probably would want somebody to be either in the emergency room for a few days, maybe you could use the urgent care for a few days to give them medication and get them a little bit, um, a little bit uh, not only sober, but a little bit more clear before you can bring them to a residential rehab. But that's something you also want to consider. Did that uh, and we have some comments on that where Ina is saying that's where you can file for grave disability, right? Right. So, so grave disability is one of the boxes you can check off on a 5150 if you're worried that somebody is not, um, you know, 
bathing themselves, uh, sort of lying like a like a lump on a log on the street for a really long period of time. Um, that would definitely be under the category of grave disability. Uh, that is where you can file. I think that's what you mean for 5150 for grave disability. Conservatorship is basically like you're saying that this person has been chronically gravely disabled. Like they for years and years have not been taking care of themselves. Uh, and maybe um, the reason I mentioned to the person who kept doing 5150s, but they kept coming back to the streets. Um, that that doesn't mean that they didn't qualify for conservatorship. It just means often we just didn't have the bed space to keep them for very long. And right now inpatient conservatorships just are not happening because of COVID, uh, which is very disappointing. Um, so the, really the only option we have right now for conservatorship is that pilot study for, uh, sorry, the pilot project for outpatient conservatorship. Okay, um, we have about five minutes left. Okay. So another question where Elise is asking, how long can a patient take IA medications as months or years? Uh, specifically thinking of a person taking Haldol who lives independently. Um, so there, I'm sorry, I kind of didn't get the beginning of the question. So you're saying um, how long can they take injectable? medication? I, I think that's what IA means. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, it, you can take injectable medication for the rest of your life. Some people, uh, really a lot of our clients um, aren't so great about taking medications every day, even when they're willing to take medication every day unless they live in like a, a skilled nursing facility or a boarding care where somebody's actually handing them their medication every day at the right time, it's often hard for people with psychosis to stay on top of that. And that's where the injectable medications are super helpful. So, because then you only have to get them to either show up at the clinic once a, once a month, or um, depending on the situation, some, sometimes we have people who can go out to the field and give them their injection once a month. Um, or sometimes uh, people can go to somebody's home, depending on what program they're in. Really, that's usually only with FSP, where you can get, get your injection once a month. Uh, so those can be really helpful. And yeah, there's no limit. It's, uh, the only difference between injectable medication and oral medication um, is, is sort of the way in which we give it. There's no time limit on how long people can be on medication. And, and the important thing to remember is bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, these are chronic illnesses. And really people with these illnesses should be on medication for a lifetime. Um, I hope that in the future we have medications that work a lot better and actually might be able to cure people. But right now, all we can do is manage their symptoms. And without um, daily medication, or if it's the injectable monthly medication, uh, they're often going to relapse and fall back either into incarceration or hospitals or sometimes worse. Should we... Move on to the, how about we move on to the, just the takeaways. 
real quickly. So just remembering, it's okay if you don't get all or any of your questions answered, certainly. If you have somebody who's not responding, it's okay. What's really important is that you're observing their appearance, their speech, their behavior, their environment. You're listening and being curious. You're paying attention to big changes and you're paying attention to no changes at all. When you compile all this information together, that's gonna help um, the doctors make a decision about what's going on with the person, how to make a good diagnosis and how to figure out the best path of treatment, even if it's, that's the street psychiatrist. Uh, remember when you're communicating with a person who's experiencing psychosis, less is more. Use simple language, few words, choose just one topic for each visit. Uh, keep your visit short, focus on feelings, not the delusions. So don't get into the weeds with whether the CIA is or is not watching somebody. Just say, yeah, you know what? That's really scary. Don't get too close to that person. Uh, make sure they have enough personal space. When they say I'm fine, remember that this is a sign that their brain is probably blind to their illness. That is the symptom, um, symptom of anosognosia and that means reasoning is not going to work with them. When, you, when, when your client is saying nothing or giving really small, vague answers, really slow to answer, remember that's a very serious sign of severe psychosis that requires medication. When they respond, respond with aggression, walk away and try another day or consider police assistance. Please don't um, sort of try and be a hero and override that sort of uh, initial feel of fear, fear that you're feeling. Um, remember that unfortunately for a lot of the homeless clients out there, they are often blind to the symptoms of their illness and they can't see that they are slowly dying on the streets. It's, it's on you to recognize that. Uh, people can't accept for help for something that they can't see and they don't believe. So these are the building blocks of grave disability. Throughout the training, there were just comments on systemic issues. Yeah. yeah. You, want, you want to read some of those or any of sure, them? They, they, um... P said, you know, they need to be sober when they enter substance abuse treatment. Yeah. Lolo said that she's worked in residential and they won't tolerate clients with severe psychosis. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, Unfortunately. I came from residential and I'm like, well, we didn't do that. So oh. hopefully not all of them. Yeah. Um, oh, there is one question though. Yvette, is there a process whereby clients can be mandated to take medication? Yeah. Um, so two, um, the first like super obvious one would be conservatorship. So if your, your client is conserved uh, for that entirety of the year, or if they keep renewing it, uh, we have the ability to force them to take medication, which usually means if we give them a pill and they refuse it, we give them an injection. And people get pretty tired of injections, like a few, few days after injections, and they usually end up just choosing to take the pill. Um, it doesn't last for very long that we have to give them injections. The other process that we have is when somebody is in the hospital, there's something called a RES petition, which means that when somebody is on a 14-day hold, also you could do it for a 30-day hold, um, 
when somebody is consistently refusing to take medicine in the hospital and their symptoms are such that we are think that they might be dangerous to somebody else or dangerous to themselves or uh, maybe they're refusing to eat or they're doing things that make us really concerned. We bring that to a judge and there's a hearing when they have their 14 day hold hearing and we say, hey, by the way, in addition to um, forcing this person to stay in the hospital, can you also force them to take medication? And I'd say like a good half of, of people who are in the hospital, when they hear that the judge tells them that they have to take medication, they'll just start taking medication, um, which is really nice. And then the other half, we have to give them injections if they don't take a pill. And as I said, people usually get tired of getting those injections and they quickly um, sort of change over to taking pills. So it doesn't have to last for very long. But there is no process that we have currently out on the streets except for the outpatient conservatorship process. Um, or if for some reason you have a client that's conserved that fell under the radar and ended up on the street. Technically somebody who's conserved is not allowed to be homeless on the streets. Uh, they have to have housing. That's one of the requirements for conserved people. So if that's the case, um, we could get them into the hospital and get them back on medication and then get them into some kind of a, a structured living situation. Yvette says, thank you. And is that supervised housing? Um, it can or cannot be. It depends on the client. Some people, if they're doing well enough, they can live um, independently, like a section eight or something. But usually that by that point, if they've gotten that well, they're probably going to be petitioning to get off conservatorship and may indeed get off conservatorship. And wonderful job, Lashar. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.